so wonderful uh, to be back here. So wonderful to see you all. I just want to say uh, my, my uh, uh, admiration, it is the Wednesday of camp after July 4th. Tell me right now, how many of you did not get enough sleep? You can raise your hand. You could admit it. I'm so happy to see you all here. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Revelation. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what I'm trying to do in this series, because I've had some wonderful conversations with people afterwards, some who are like, well, I'm trying to get everything. I want to be clear, I, there is no way in five days I can go through everything in Revelation. What I am doing is I am a pilot in a plane, and I am flying you over the book of Revelation, and I'm pointing out landmarks. There is so much going on that we would not have time to address, to dig into. As a pastor who would teach this in my church, I would either do a sermon on the whole book or I would do a series that might take a few months uh, going through this. This is simply looking at landmarks. But sometimes, have you ever been on a plane and the pilot's telling you what to look at and you're like, wait, wait, was that the St. Louis Arch? What's going on over here? Uh, we're going to fly through. Uh, I appreciate you staying with me. Uh, we have been talking about uh, uh, the worship and witness and work of the church. In our first session, we looked at how the book of Revelation is about Jesus. And Jesus has a word for the church, and the word for the church is to work. Jesus is concerned about the church's ineffectiveness. I've put you in the world. I'm calling you to be effective. We looked at what Revelation had to say yesterday, and we looked at the worship of the church. We began around the throne room of God, and what did we see? God is the center. Jesus is the key. He unlocks history. This world is not our security, but the church is for everybody. Now, I want to say something about Jesus and God as center, because I think this is a key that we sometimes miss in the whole book. Uh, we talk about God, and we talk about many times the glory of God. The glory of God fills the place. What does glory mean? Glory in the Hebrew comes from the word kabod, which actually is also the word for weightiness. When you talk about the glory of something, you're talking about the weightiness of it, the impact of it. And the way I sometimes like to illustrate it is I like to illustrate it with the concept of gravity. How many know that there are some people who walk into a room who have more gravity than other people? Right? Now, now I'm not talking about actual weight. You know, next time your spouse says to you, how do I look? Don't tell her she looks glorious because that means something else. What I am saying is that as a college professor, I have noticed that when students walk into a classroom and another student walks in, many times students don't even look up. They don't care about another student walking in. This is my peer. They have the same weight I do. I'm not even paying attention to them. When the professor walks in, that professor comes in with a little more gravity. And many times students notice when the professor walks in. Sometimes as a professor, I walk in and I see students checking their watch. They're noticing when I came to class. If the college president walks in, because I would usually teach with my door open. And how many of you can tell that even without a microphone, I can be loud? And from time to time, I would have the president of our university, uh, either president who I served under, just walk into the classroom because they heard me talking and they wanted to say something. Whenever the president walked in, the entire class stopped. I would stop 
The students would wonder, is he about to get fired? What's going on here? The president had more gravity. He had more glory. But in sometimes, there would be a student in class who had feelings for another student in class. And when that student walked in, it wasn't the professor they were concerned about. It wasn't the college professor they were concerned about. That other student had all the gravity. That other student had all the glory. In fact, I've seen, I'll say this is a college professor. This is nothing to do with revelation, but this is just funny. Uh, many times I'll, I'll notice students that you can start to tell students are setting closer to each other every class. Like you're starting to watch this, you're like, huh, something's going on here. And once in a while, I'll find signs students sitting next to each other. In fact, I was in one class where I had two students that would sit so close to each other, they were almost on the other side of each other. And, and, I, and they would just look at each other the entire class. I'm teaching, and I could tell they're not even paying attention because they get to sit next to each other. And I thought to myself, you had better get married for the way you're acting in my class right now because it's got to be worth it. You're missing gold here, guys. you got to be getting married. And now they're faithfully serving God as missionaries in a closed country. And I'm like, okay, you're risking your life for Jesus. I'll allow that. God has the gravity. When God walks into the room, God gets the attention. When God is present, God is in the center. Everything revolves around God. God has the gravity. God has the glory. And yet we live in a world where God can show up and people don't even look up. Where they can hear the word of the gospel but they're more concerned about something else. I'll give you another quick example. Have you ever been in a church service where you weren't paying attention? Everyone who didn't raise their hand, it might be right now. If you've ever been in a church service where you weren't paying attention, once I was in service, in a, and I'll say I went to Evangel College. Evangel College is a wonderful university. It's not North Central. It's a wonderful university. Evangel had something that uh, uh, they were known for. And what they were known for was they were known for chicken strips on Sunday. Their chicken strips were amazing. To this day, I have never had chicken strips like that. Chick-fil-A has nothing on Evangel University chicken strips. In fact, once I was teaching in a Chi Alpha meeting, and I was giving this analogy that I'm about to give you, and I talked about Evangel, and I said they had something great that no one else had, and three Chi Alpha students who looked up, and they're like, chicken strips! <laughs> and I'm like, did you guys go to Evangel? They go, yeah. I'm like, when? They're like, we graduated a few years ago. Chicken strips are still good. <laughs> they're still known for that, apparently. Sunday. Everyone would go to church, and then everyone would rush to the cafeteria, because here's the thing, they always ran out of chicken strips. So you would want to get out of church as quickly as possible. You would want to figure how to get to that cafeteria to get in line, because you don't want someone from some other church stealing your chicken strips, right? So I'm in church. Pastor is going long. And I start thinking about chicken strips. 
And I'm thinking, when is he going to get to the end of this sermon? I have got to get in the car and get to the cafeteria. And I actually do this thing where in my head I'm mapping the quickest route from the, the, the sanctuary to the parking lot, from the parking lot to the cafeteria. How can I get there quickly? I brought two guys with me to church, also from the school. And, and so sermon is ending. Finally, we get to the altar call. I look to this guy on my side to say, hey, let's go. And when I look at him, he's crying. And he looks at me and he says, isn't that the most amazing sermon you've ever heard? <laughs> and I look at him and I'm like, you want to go to the altar, don't you? He's like, well, don't you? <laughs> no, because I was thinking of chicken strips. In that moment, chicken strips had more glory to me than God. In that moment, they had the gravity. We live in a world where other things are given the glory over God. Other things are given the attention over God. And the church in Revelation is being persecuted for this because their consistent example of giving glory to God, of giving worship to God, of putting their lives under the authority of God, of giving themselves to the witness of God, that's what's getting them in trouble. And Revelation is written to vindicate them, to encourage them, to let them know you guys are right. God really is at the center. God really is in charge. And I say that because as much as what we looked at last time was about worship, what we're going to look at today is about witness. And here's the thing that connects our witness and our worship. Both of them give the glory to God. Both of them give the glory to God. So, Revelation chapter 10. The author says that he sees a mighty angel... This mighty angel has a scroll. In fact, we're going to read this here. The voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again against many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. In this passage, we're told about a scroll that's held by a mighty angel. An angel that is like the Colossus of Rhodes. He has his foot on one land. He has his foot on the other land. He stands up. He's covered in light. He's clothed in a, 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 uh, clothed in a cloud. A mighty angel. And when the angel speaks, seven thunders roar. And this is one of the most amazing things in Revelation. John says, I went to write down what the seven thunders said and I was told it was off the record. What did the seven thunders say? Well, I don't know. It was off the record. Here's what a lot of scholars believe. A lot of scholars believe that we have seven seals, we had seven trumpets, and that very likely these seven thunders were a continuation of the judgment. In fact, Leviticus 26 gives us four sets of sevens that are God's judgment on the world. Seals, trumpets, thunders. Tomorrow we're going to talk about bowls. Here's our seven. 
But here's what's interesting. These seven judgments escalate. So we looked at the seven seals yesterday, and they end with the fourth of humanity being killed in the fourth seal. We come to the seven trumpets, and the first few trumpets, it's a third, it's a third, it's a third, until finally a third of humanity is killed. Now, how many of you know a third is a higher number than a fourth? Oh, good. You know, the story is told of, of one burger chain here in America that years ago was competing against someone that had a quarter pounder, and they wanted to announce for the same price you could get a third pounder. And they had to drop the campaign because too many people thought a third was less than a fourth. <laughs> third is more than fourth. 33% is more than 25%. If we go from a fourth being killed to a third being killed, what do you think is going to happen in the seven thunders? Say it again. A half. And then we come to the fourth, which would be everybody. That's what you would expect, but here's what it said. Don't write down what the thunders say. Instead, the judgment is no longer going to be delayed. Now's the time. Now's the time. And you hold yourself in anticipation. The seventh trumpet is about to go. God just said the judgment's going to come. I think the book of Revelation is getting coming, coming to an end. And then we're told this. God is going to fulfill what he announced to his servants, the prophets. And what we miss in the English that you wouldn't miss in the Greek is that word announce, euangelion, is the word gospel. God is getting to fulfill what he gospeled to his prophets. In other words, and I don't want us to miss this, the message that God has even in judgment, is still the gospel. We sometimes forget that God isn't trying to destroy what he created. God is trying to save what he created. God's judgment means salvation. It means salvation because in judgment, people have the opportunity to be saved. But it also means salvation because when it is done, everything that has been corrupting us is gone. It's salvation because God has removed the rot from the building. No one would look at a building that was replacing beams because of rottenness and feel sorry for the rotten beams. The building's being saved. God's judgment is salvation for the world he created. This is still the gospel. Revelation is still the gospel. And so the revelator is given a scroll. This is taken directly from Ezekiel chapter 2 where the same thing happens. And he's told to eat the scroll. And it's going to be sweet in your mouth, but it's going to be bitter in your stomach. It's going to taste sweet and it's going to feel bitter. And of course, a lot of scholars believe the reason is simply this. This scroll represents the ongoing witness of the church to God's plan. God's word is sweet, but how many of you know God's word isn't easy? How many know God's word is sweet, but God's word's not easy? There is going to come from this point on an emphasis on the witness of the church. And the one thing we're going to be told repeatedly is God's word is life, but our witness might mean death. It is sweet, but it's also bitter.
Now, I, I want to tell you that this is going to be an encouraging message. Instead, I'm going to tell you it's going to encourage you in the long run. But in the short run, how many of you know following Jesus might hurt? It's a sweet message that can still feel bitter. Following Jesus might hurt. Which is what happens in the very next passage, chapter 11. We're not going to read this, but we have this story of two witnesses. Two witnesses who were called to prophesy for 1,260 days or about three and a half years. Right away, we might ask ourselves, is this symbolic of something? Are these two people who are actually going to show up throughout church history? They've been identified with characters like Enoch and Elijah because they had already been caught up. Now they've come back down. Or Moses and Elijah because they have the power to do the things Moses and Elijah could do. Turn water into blood. Cast down fire. I can't tell you, because that's not a debate I want to enter into, because we only have five days. But I am going to say that regardless, it still teaches us something about our witness. These are men who can do what? They are called to prophesy for a set time. They are able to execute judgment. Now, even if this judgment is symbolic, how many know that just by the church giving the gospel, we're also giving judgment? Because if I'm telling someone they need to be saved, that means they need to be saved from something. If I tell someone, have you repented of their sins, what am I implying to them? That they have sins. And I'm going to tell you, we live in a world that doesn't want to hear that. Because where are we most likely to hear the word sin outside the church? In marketing. Las Vegas is Sin City. How many ever gone and read a menu and it said a certain food was sinfully delicious? The way our world uses sin is as a marketing ploy to tell you how good something is. No one calls Vegas Sin City, and what they mean by that is, don't come, God's getting ready to destroy us all. This is Sin City. No, what it means is, is how good it is. And yet the church shows up in the world, and the church tells people they need to be saved from their sins. The gospel means judgment even though it brings life. So these prophets, they can execute judgment. They're called to witness for a set time, and they're killed, but they rise again in three and a half days. And it's really a powerful story, because in the story, when they're done with their testimony, when their time is over, the beast, the first time we see the beast in Revelation, ascends from the abyss, kills them, makes a spectacle of their bodies for three and a half days, before every person, tribe, language, and nation. Where have we heard that phrase before? Every person, tribe, language, and nation. It's who is praising God around his throne. Here's what I want to highlight that you're going to see throughout these series of chapters. Is God and the devil are competing in a sense for the same audience. The vision that we have of the church is every people, every tribe, every language, every nation. But what the enemy is going to do is going to be a spectacle before every people, every tribe, every language, every nation. And it's one thing that we have to recognize as Christians, one of the most damaging things that, to our witness or challenging our, our own sense that maybe we're on the right or wrong side of this, is that when Christians are killed people can rejoice. 
For three and a half days, the death of these two witnesses lead to the entire world celebrating. Do you realize how hard it is to live in a world where the thing you hold most dear is so disregarded that when it comes to an end, people celebrate? That there is a parade and the whole parade is about your demise. You know, I've said to, to people before, never live your life in such a way that when you're gone, people will think it's a good thing. But we have to recognize that as Christians, our very witness in bringing the judgment of God could be seen as a good thing that we're gone. And there are Christians in this time who recognize this. Remember, there were Christians in Rome who as they were being killed, there were people in the stands clapping. As they were dying, there were people rejoicing. I live in a world where people would be happy to see me gone because I have a witness for Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. Three and a half days later, we're told that they were resurrected. They ascend to heaven in a cloud, and what follows is a horrible earthquake, and the people of the world give God glory. Give God glory. What we see in this passage is that the witnesses of God act in the image of Jesus. They're empowered to bear witness. And I always want to remind us as Christians, we are empowered to bear witness. Being a witness means bearing witness. Too many Christians sometimes think being a witness is just being a Christian alone in your room. But it's only in bearing witness that we become a witness. And God has empowered us to witness. We've got to take advantage of the power that God has for us. How many know that the church is expected to move in wonders and signs? How many know that God sets things up in your own life where you bearing witness at the right moment creates the right opportunity because God's already gone ahead? We have to witness like God has already empowered us and like the Holy Spirit has already gone before us. There's not a person I bear witness to that I don't think God has already been there before me. I'm never number one because the Holy Spirit is number one. I might be number two. I might be number 250 that's come to them. But God has already gone before. We're empowered to bear witness. Our witness means facing death. If the church turned the word witness into the word martyr, because that's what it means, we have to understand that witness, even with power, doesn't mean we're going to be protected from everything. Sometimes our witness means death, but facing death also means the promise of resurrection. Uh, when I was uh, a young, I was introduced to the concept of the rapture through a film called Thief in the Night. Has anyone ever seen A Thief in the Night? It was left behind, but with 1970s production values. <laughs> Thief in the Night, now I'm going to butcher the plot of the film because I only remember it from when I watched it as a child. It was a watch night service. We used to have service that would take us from one New Year's Eve all the way through New Year. They showed that film in my church. In the film, the rapture happens. 
a woman wakes up, her family is gone, and because all the Christians have been raptured, all the churches are empty, so the churches are now taken over by the government, and the government starts having a lottery system for those who will take the mark of the beast. And you would go, and, and by the way, you say lottery system, what's that? Remember, this was during the time of the Vietnam War where they would actually, you know, do an actual lottery or they'd call your name and you would have to register for the draft or, 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 or you would be drafted. And so you would wait in church, your name would get called, you had to decide right then and there whether or not to take the mark of the beast. If you said no, they would take you behind this door on the side of the church, this red door. You would go out the door, sometimes in the film, people would scream. They would come running back through the door, say, give me the mark, give me the mark. Sometimes they would scream, and they wouldn't come out at all. And so the whole film, you're kind of like, what's behind the door? And so finally this young woman, her name gets called. She has a choice to make. She goes up, she says she doesn't want the mark. They take her through the door. It turns out that the door opens up into the parking lot, and in the parking lot they have set up a guillotine. And now you know what's going on. They strap her into the guillotine. She's face up, so now the camera has her perspective, and you're just looking at the blade. Before the blade falls, she wakes up. Turns out it was all a dream. And she goes to tell her family. It turns out the rapture happened that morning. It's going to start all over again. That's the movie. That's at least how I remember it. The pastor stands up and says, if you would like to avoid this fate. Come down to the altar and give your heart to Jesus. I was five years old. I ran to that altar as fast as I could get there because I had just watched a beheading and I didn't want to get my head cut off. That's how I gave my heart to the Lord. And I wasn't one of these kids who went to the altar multiple times. That's the only time in my life I've ever answered that call. Because I meant it. Now, I'm not going to defend that movie. I'm not, never going to show that to my son. But I spent many years of my life thinking that coming to Jesus is what keeps me from coming, getting beheaded. Only to come to the book of Revelation and find out then the revelation coming to Jesus is what might get you beheaded. The witness of the church does not mean we're protected from all harm. What it means is that the worst they can do to us, God can still overturn. All the world can do to you is kill you. What God can do is bring you back. The promise we have in God is greater than any threat this world can offer. So then we come to the next passage, and this is the one that captures a lot of people's attention. Uh, I want to give you some background to this passage, and we're going to have to wrap up here rather quickly because I've told you way too many stories. So let me tell you another story. <laughs> there was a Greek myth that had been repurposed by Rome, and here was the myth. The myth was is that there was a goddess named Leto who had gotten pregnant from the high god Zeus. 
Now, Leto was not the wife of Zeus. Zeus's wife was Hera. Hera didn't like what her husband would do, and Hera decided to try and kill Leto because she was going to give birth to Zeus's children, who themselves would now become inheritors of the gods. So she sends a serpent after Leto. The serpent's name is Python. Python agrees to this because Python has already heard a prophecy that one of the children of Leto was going to kill him. So he wants to kill her first. So he pursues her. She escapes him through great pain because she's starting to give birth. She finally makes it to a safe place. She gives birth to two children. One is called Artemis. The other is called Apollo. Apollo eventually fulfills the prophecy, kills Python, and it leads to a period of prosperity for all of the world. Now here's what's interesting about this. The Romans took that story over. And in their version, the goddess was Roma. The god she gave birth to was the emperor. And the emperor kills the serpent to bring peace and prosperity to the world. This is a known story in John's time. So John does what? He repurposes that story. And he says, there was a woman who had 12 stars over her head. What does that make you think of? 12 tribes. And she was pregnant. And she was pursued by a great dragon. Why? This is a dragon who has crowns on his horns and his heads. He's a dragon who thinks he's in charge. But the child she's to give birth to, that's the child who's going to rule. So the dragon tries to destroy the child. She is able to give birth. He's wanting to snatch up. God protects her. The child is protected. The child is brought up. Again, you suddenly start to realize this is a story about Jesus. It's taken the Roman myth about their emperor, and it's saying, no, let me tell you the story of what really happened. It's symbolic. But this is the enemy trying to destroy God's people. God's people gave us a Messiah. The enemy tried to destroy the Messiah. God raised the Messiah up. And now what's happening the enemy's trying to destroy those who follow the Messiah. He's hurled to the ground. He's cast out of heaven. He's no longer the accuser of the brethren. And what does he do in turn? The enemy raises two beasts, one from the sea and one from the land. The first beast, and I'll say the description seems crazy, but if you read the book of Daniel, Daniel gives us four beasts that represent different kingdoms that are to come, and this one beast in Revelation is an amalgamation of the four beasts. The way I, I explain Revelation is, how many know hip-hop? Okay, come on. You all knew who let the dogs out last night. <laughs> don't tell me you don't know hip-hop. Hip-hop is a musical style that depends heavily on something called sampling where you take things from other songs and you put them together to create your own song. What's happening in John's revelation? He's sampling all of the Old Testament. And he's taking these ideas that people recognize. These are the things that I saw. And he's putting it together so that now we have this one beast, this one kingdom, this one power. He's given authority from the dragon to be worshipped. He has a head that is wounded but is healed and everyone marvels. And suddenly this beast starts to sound a little bit like Jesus because this is the Antichrist. And what does he do with this beast? 
He makes him an object of worship, and the beast begins persecuting those who won't worship him. Then you have another beast who comes from the land, and this is a beast who's named in the text a false prophet, whose power is to give authority and support to the other beast so that people will worship the other beast, and he works miraculous signs. And he even creates an image of the other beast that is to be worshipped, an image that moves. Like in, I always think of a Disney animatronic, but it probably doesn't mean that. But an image that moves. And what you see going on here, and i got to do this rather quickly, is in this story you find Satan setting up a false trinity. What is the story of the trinity? God the Father sent Jesus the Son who was killed and raised again, who has received the authority of the Father, who is worthy of the glory and worship of God, and who is glorified by the Holy Spirit, who comes and brings us into the life of Jesus. And now what does Satan do? He, the dragon, gives his authority to a beast who becomes an object of worship, who has another beast who gives glory to that beast. And the end game is this, tries to get all of humanity, and this is said again, all peoples, language, tribes, and tries to get all of humanity to worship the image of the beast. Why does this matter? It matters for this reason, and I'm going to come down here because I want to see your eyes for this. Humanity has been created in the image of God. What that means is we reflect God's authority to the rest of creation. We're responsible. It's our job to care for what God created. It's our job to treat each other as his image. When we act as the image of God, creation is whole. When we don't act as God's image, creation can be destroyed. How many human beings are the only species on the planet that could destroy the planet? We have the power. In fact, the whole story of the flood is that humanity had so filled the world with violence, God had to do something about humanity because we were about to destroy all of his creation. Judgment was about salvation. He's just saving the world from us. Now we come to this story. How does it work that we reflect God's authority? By putting our worship on God. Because whatever we revere is what we reflect. Whatever we revere is what we reflect. If I was created to be God's image and I'm focused on the worship of God, that's going to make me the image of God the way I'm supposed to be. When I see God for who he is, I can see everyone else for who they are as God's image. I can see creation for what is as the creation of God and everything's the way it's supposed to be. But what if the enemy, rather than letting humanity be the charge it should be, Rather than having a representative of humanity, Jesus, take the throne the way humanity should be. Jesus represents our destiny. What if he put up something less than humanity? What if he put up a beast? And rather than getting us to reflect God, he made the object of worship the image of a beast. Anything we worship that is less than God means we're living beneath our own humanity. Anything we worship that is less than God means that we're living beneath our own humanity. And if God, if the enemy, can get us to worship the image of a beast, you always reflect whatever you revere, what do we become in turn? We become beasts. 
And the enemy's game plan is this. He wants to destroy God's creation. Understand, we are the key to destroying God's creation. If we will not worship God, we cannot recognize each other as the image of God. If we don't recognize each other as the image of God, we're going to turn on each other and we won't recognize our responsibility for creation. And when it's over, we will become less than human. Does that make sense? What do we even call behavior that's less than human? We call it inhumane. The whole point of Satan is he's using idolatry to drive us to inhumanity. And the church stands against that in witness of Jesus, which is why Satan is trying to destroy the church, because Jesus is the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is the one on the throne. Jesus is the key to everything. Jesus is the salvation and hope for all of creation. As a church, we represent the way it's supposed to be. And the game plan of the enemy is to corrupt humanity, but he can't do that fully if we're still here. Does that make sense? Our witness is vital for all of creation. Our witness is vital for all of creation. What you're doing is important. What you're doing matters. Your witness to that coworker, your witness to that person on the street, your witness to your family, that is absolutely key. Because we are the example of a creation and a humanity that is being redeemed. What you do and your witness matters. And sometimes as Christians, we don't understand just how important it is. Just how cosmically important it is. Our witness matters. We come to the last scene and we're going to close with this. We see a beast that comes from the sea. How many of you have ever tried to walk on the sea? Yeah, it's hard, right? We see a beast that comes from the land, and if the land is right next to the sea, what's that sound like? It's like a beach, right? But then we have this next vision, and I saw a lamb that was standing on a mountain. What the enemy stands on is not secure. What Jesus stands on will last for all time. I saw 144,000 with him. These were sealed. These were protected. These who stood with him were able to withstand the enemy. We're told they stand and follow the Lamb. We're told they sing a song of redemption. And we're told they will not experience the judgment of God. Here's the theme I want you to get from all of this, and it's simply this. The church will be persecuted, but the church will be protected. The church will be persecuted, your witness will have a cost. Your witness will have a price. As important as it is, that's why it's going to be resisted. If our witness didn't matter, there would be no conflict. As important as your witness is, in fact, I'll just say this, the more effective you are, the more resistance you will experience from the enemy. But as important as our witness is, 
It's going to be lead, lead to persecution. But we're told throughout Revelation, we will still be protected. Protected from death? No, protected through death. The church will not fail. Say that with me. The church will not fail. I can fail, but the church will not fail. There will always be a people of God who will last to the end. Can I give you one more story? We're going to call the team up here very quickly. What does it look like to be persecuted but still protected? One of my favorite stories comes from a brother, Brother Andrew. He used to work in Eastern Europe uh, bringing Bibles during the time of the Iron Curtain. And he told this story about a man who felt like God was calling him from Russia to go to Siberia as a witness, as a missionary. He said, but in Russia, you had to get agreement for travel. He tried to get to Siberia, but you can't put on there, I want to go to Siberia for missions, so they wouldn't let him go. So what he did was he started preaching on the street corner. Well, that was illegal. So they arrested him. They threw him in jail. Now he's in jail. What does he do? He starts preaching from the prison. People in prison get saved. It creates such a ruckus, they kick him out of prison. So he goes back to the street corner and preaches again. They arrest him. They put him back in the same prison. When he shows up, everyone starts clapping because they said, you told us about Jesus, but they kicked you out before you could disciple us. And we've been praying that God would send you back. And he said, don't pray that again. He discipled them. They kicked him out again. But what do you do with a man that you can't arrest, but you can't set free? They exiled him to Siberia, which is where God called him to go. That's what I mean. The church will be persecuted, but the church will still be protected. No matter what the enemy throws at us, God will use for his glory. I want us all to stand. I want to pray with you, and then we're going to have one song of worship here at the end. But here's how I want to pray. Number one, if there's anyone here who says, look, I don't belong to Jesus now. I want to pray for you to simply ask God to forgive you of your sins, to become the Lord of your life, and to know that from this point on, you can belong to the community that will stand with God. I want to pray for our witness as a church. I want us to recognize the importance of the word God has given us. It has cosmic importance. Don't ever be a church that treats a presidential election as more important than the gospel. We have a bigger message. And I want us to pray for this world. Because even in the light of this judgment, God is still giving this world hope. We need to pray for the salvation of the world. As, I, as you close your eyes, I just want to ask, if there's anyone here who needs to pray to receive Jesus, just pray with me. God, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I want to belong to you, Jesus, and I believe in everything that has happened that I can belong to God. In Jesus' name.